Support for a quick timeout podcast is brought to you by our friends at Dr. Dish Basketball. College and professional teams from around the country rely on Dr. Dish shooting machines to help improve their players' development. Whether it's in the gym or at home in your driveway, Dr. Dish will improve your basketball workouts. To find out more about how Dr. Dish can help your program, visit drdishbasketball.com. Welcome into episode number two of Coffee with Coaches. Uh, if by chance you missed the first episode, you can check that out on YouTube or here on Twitter. Um, if you want to hear it in audio form, you can check that out on a quick timeout podcast page. I have that logged there. Today's guest is none other than Coach Nick of B-Ball Breakdown. Probably a lot of you are familiar with Coach Nick and have followed his stuff. First question that I have for you, Coach, coffee, tea, or neither? Neither. Neither. I don't like coffee. Uh, I don't drink tea unless it's like Arnold Palmer, I guess doesn't count. So yeah, I guess neither. Wow. All right. Okay. Well, that's simple. Well, uh, for those on the East coast, you may be reheating your coffee to have this, but those on the West coast, I guess maybe they're in there, their second or third cup, depending on how late you wake up. Has this changed your schedule? The virus changed your schedule at all? Or are you kind of up at the same time? Um, you know, I'm kind of up at the same time. I, I discovered though that, you know, before this whole lockdown thing happened, my life was basically one big lockdown anyway. Sure. You know, I would literally be by myself in my studio looking at film all day anyway. Um, it would be nice to be able to go out to lunch with somebody every once in a while. That's the one thing I miss and certainly, but uh, uh, it hasn't changed much besides having to every 45 minutes run into my house make sure my kid is into the next class on the computer and then come back in. And that's been, oh, you know, not, not as easy as I like, but uh, you make do. I think one of the things that we're all trying to do, fill our time, talk about, watch, rewatch. I saw that you've broken down the last dance. So I'll just ask you general thoughts on the last, last dance. And then maybe you can direct people to see your in-depth thoughts on your YouTube page. Sure. Well, it, you know, it's my youth. I grew up in Chicago and we had season tickets for, since Michael Jordan's second year. So I saw all of those games live. Actually, I, I did move after the 95-96 season. I moved to L.A. So I missed the I missed those last two years. So in some uh, respects, this is a little bit new to me, too, to see all the behind the scenes footage from the last year. Um, but uh, it really is just reliving all of my youth and like texting all my friends and remembering all these different things, uh, probably confirming some of the, maybe the rumors we used to hear. They're, they're leaving some of them out that we all had heard back then, um, but it's really well done. And I think it's sort of, you know, cementing maybe some of the younger people's minds, you know, just how good Michael Jordan was. Um, and uh, it's been really fun to do these, you know, every Sunday dropping a video uh, in anticipation of what they're gonna talk about uh that night and uh so i even did one on the triangle offense and how that worked for them and what you know i'm a triangle offense coach so it's kind of it was easy for me to do but um i had been saying for years that i was i wouldn't teach the, the pure triangle anymore because it's not modern but you know what after going through it like that i realized um you could totally do it with a couple of minor tweaks and really still have a viable offense i've been watching as a fan but now I, I grew up during that era, and so I loved Jordan and loved kind of reliving that just like you. But then now it's interesting for me being older as a coach, looking back on it, I'm paying attention to maybe even more so the information that Phil is giving and kind of the information that they're talking about, how his dynamic between the players and the coaches. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today is that player-coach dynamic and then also motivating players. I think we all um, had thoughts about and were very interested to see that episode with Dennis Rodman and how he related to Dennis. And this, I think Jordan even mentioned the fact that, that Phil knew how 
Dennis thought and what made him tick. But that didn't excuse. I, I don't think that his behavior was excused. I, I remember the clip of when he came back from them going to Vegas and grabbing him and bringing him back. And, you know, Phil kind of confronted him on that. And so I, I do want to talk about not just Phil, but this conversation actually goes back about a year ago, I think is when we talked about it, it was right about the time where Tom Izzo and the incident with him and motivating his players, that was big and being talked about. And so that's kind of in general what our topic is going to be about. So I'll just kind of start out with this. You have the context of not just recent, not just the last year, but the last kind of spanning back 20, 30 years just because of the research that you've done. But would you say more or less today's culture, today's climate with basketball, coaches are more or less player centric than they were 20, 25 years ago? Um, I, I, you know, and it's interesting because player centric is another term. It's not easy to, to define necessarily, but I do feel like um, there is, there are less of the drill sergeants. If maybe if that's the, the, uh, the question there are, there is been a budging to some degree and it's by age, I think uh, guys older than us, you know, probably are a little bit more rigid and aren't willing to sort of evolve into that point. But, um, you know, I'm doing a series right now once a week with Mark Bennett, who has developed a, a like a whole new athlete centered approach to coaching, which is sort of what you're referencing and uh, listening to some of their suggestions. You know, I, I can just hear uh, certain coaches in America just cringing at like their suggestions like they would even say every, after every practice, you would actually engage the players into how you did. How was my coaching that day? And I, cause I had thrown it out in one of the questions saying, well, is it a kind of thing where maybe at the end of the year you give them a questionnaire or like that could be anonymous or you ask them, how did I do as a coach this year? He goes, no, we do that after every practice. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, wow. But you know what? There's so much value in listening to the players and, and finding out what, you know, like, like Phil Jackson said, like what makes, Dennis Rodman tick. And those are the ways that engage you and get the buy-in that this elusive buy-in that coaches, you know, are always searching for and tend to complain the most about. I am in agreement with you. I think that uh, you look back to coaching generations, you're dealing with people who are either in the war or sons from the war. And I think sometimes we almost excuse it as, especially if we're dealing with high school kids, college age kids, these are in our context. Let's just talk about the men's game. These are young men who need to learn discipline. And so almost that rigid, again, that militaristic view of, you know, do it this way, this way. And I'm, you do so much with the pro game. And we talk almost about pro coaches being the managers that have to manage these egos and these young men. They would never talk to a guy a certain way that would be harsh or whatever because that player would just turn on him but yet we say that it's okay to do that with high school and college players your thoughts on that well you know phil jackson had talked about it in probably sacred hoops which was one of those tomes i read and studied and tried to emulate even you know in the 90s when i was first starting to coach and he had said, you know, sort of flip of that, which would be that even though these guys are millionaires and make more money than the coaches, their stars or whatever, there's still the semblance of a hierarchy where they need the coach. The coach is there to help them. And they, they've been trained to sort of be in that environment. So there isn't a, necessarily a lot of difference between the high school programs and the pros in some way that, you know, it, obviously there's a lot, there's, there's, there's practical differences, but there is a sort of a standard um, organizational thing that exists all the way across. So, you know, I've gone to tons of NBA practices, tons of D1 practices and tons of high school practices. 
and they're 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 similar, right? They are similar. There's a lot of the same things going on, the same things being said, and um, I think that there is a through line there that we can learn back and forth from both. But certainly, um, I, I I get the fear of you know the high school coaches, for instance, who are you know they just. They, they don't want the, the players to slip or they don't want, they don't want them to, uh, to develop like bad habits. They call them. This is the chance to really grind. And um, here's the thing I, I, I throw out there. Uh, I was one of those crazy guys play with smoke out of my ears, you know, and I, and I guess I would have gravitated towards those, you know, I had those coaches like the Bobby Knight style. Um, but I don't, I can't do that now. Like I'm trying to swim laps and I can't, you know, I can't push myself like I used to, I, I die after four and I have to wait and rest. I started realizing that, you know, a certain type of coach on, you know, on day one would say, we're going to do 20, rep, uh, 20 of these things, you know, and it's going to take eight minutes to do And man, you're going to, you're going to probably end up failing and it's going to be, you know, really difficult, but you're going to learn how to, you know, push yourself and be a man. Whereas you could also do it progressively and say, okay, today we're going to do four of these reps and then three days from, and every day for the next three days. And then after that, we're going to do six. And then in about a week and a half, we're going to be up to like 12. And then in three weeks, we'll be up to 25. Now, the point I'm making is that you could be at the same spot as you would if you had started to try and have them do 25 on day one. Okay. But you have a whole different mindset of the player where as you progress into it, you're not grinding on them and screaming at them and making them feel worthless. They can't do it. And they're failing day after day after day and then inching along. If you do it the other way, you get to the same spot and you actually probably have a better relationship with the players. A couple words that you've mentioned, fear, anger, and the idea of emotion with it. Um, is there a line between passion and being out of control or is that a myth? No, here's the other problem. Well, the myth, I think, is that if you don't want to coach the way Bobby Knight did, for instance, then you're going to have soft, weak players and you're not coaching with any kind of passion. And that's a problem because uh, it's not binary. You know, it's not simply like either that or that. And I've obviously encountered that quite a bit of like that's the blowback. So we're never saying, oh, you can't coach with passion. Nobody is perfect. Nobody is a robot. But uh, it's got to be emotionally exhausting to go through a, a, a season where you have a, a coach who has trouble keeping control of that emotion, you know, under the guise of toughening up your players or holding them accountable. Um, I'm, you know, in this weekly series I'm doing, which culminates today in a live show right after this on my channel, uh, what we've been trying to say and show is that when you let the players establish the non-negotiables from day one, and it doesn't have to be a long list, but it has to be a few of them, then you, you, it's amazing how much they end up policing themselves. And that is so much more powerful uh, to a team when they can own the program and own the fundamentals and own what the non-negotiables are and hold each other accountable. You then would have players who probably would have been the really quiet ones who never really could take charge or learn how to have a voice in that setting. It might, might be the rest of their lives be that way. And suddenly you can, you can help train these players to have that voice and to be able to speak up and have maybe be a, a somewhat quiet leader, but develop some of those leadership qualities. And there's no question in my mind, having seen the other way, that that would be a more optimal way to run your program. And you just get more out of it. They play better and they play over their head when you needed it. I'll speak for myself, but if I'm honest about things, the time that I'm angry, the times that I'm angry and well, I hope that's not very often, but the times that I'm angry, it's a lot of times where that player didn't do what I told them to do. You embarrassed me on the floor. You know better to do that. Now I'm angry. And I don't think that's right in any context. 
Right. I, I think that um, we now know what the chemical, uh, uh, what, what happens chemically in the brain when faced with anger and disgust, right? And, and the body language that's included in that. And so here's what I, t I tell, and I'm still trying to refine how I want to present this question because it's too vague, but I, I usually ask what, uh, coaches when, I, when I'm interacting, I'll say, what do you think the goal of the coach is for, in a game? Well, I mean, what is the overall goal the coach should have in, you know, in mind, top, top you know, goal in a game? And it's vague because it's like there's a lot of things that are going on. I get it. But my answer generally is the goal should be to get your players to play as well as they possibly can in a game. Now, if you want to put them in situations and practice where they have to deal with some things mentally, whatever, that can be challenging, it's different. But in a game, that should be your overall focus. And if that really is the mantra and that is what the goal is, the intention, then, and knowing what we know about science and how the brain reacts to anger and disgust and all those things, then you would never detonate on a player in a game. Now, of course, we're not robots, like I said, and it happens, uh, and emotions and stress uh, you know, hit people different ways. But if you could have that kind of um, goal and it's clear in your mind, and it might take a while to sort of absorb that, then you would probably see a lot less of these you know, crazy uh, rantings on the, by the coaches that you see a lot of. Which is interesting because the goal that you just mentioned is one that if those of us that have followed basketball for a long time, that's John Wooden, right? Like that's what success is, is getting the players to play at their optimal levels. Um, and I've been having some conversations with some of their for with some of the former players. And I know you've talked with some people who have worked with him before. So, I, you know, kind of even talking about this idea of teaching, praising, and maybe scolding something that I've challenged coaches to do is to track during a practice how many of your comments fall into that teaching category, that praising category, and that scolding category. And I'll admit, like, it's hard sometimes because as a coach, we want to we wanna find the wrong behavior and correct it. So I think our heart is right, but we're almost scolding a lot, and then we justify that because I'm correcting behavior that's wrong I don't have time to, you know, they're doing a good job with this. We've already got that. I'm focusing my attention on what's wrong and to fix that. It's almost the reverse of that, right? Like our, our focus needs to be on that teaching and praising, not on that scolding. Right. Well, I, you know, it's funny because when you, when you start talking about the praising thing and then the coaches want to turn, tune out and say, ah, I'm not going to keep track of whatever this golden rule is. I'm, I'm not going to just blow sunshine up everyone's butts the whole time. And I think what they discovered about John Wooden was that it was the teaching that had the greatest percentage of his, his communication to the players. So there was that whatever the percentage was of the praise, whatever, but it was the teaching. And like, here's the thing. I think that we talk a lot about trust. And I, I think that it, it tends to be a one-way road for a lot of coaches where the coach says, I have to trust that you're going to do what I'm telling you to do. And if you get my trust, I'll play you more. Like that's usually the way that works. Well, I think it's a two-way street. I think the player needs to trust that the coach wants the best out of him. And so when you start to practice different methods of, of you know, and where you can, you know, in a, in a very concrete way, display that you are trying to help get the best out of them then they begin to trust you that that's what you're trying to do. And once you develop that mutual trust, that's when you can kind of get more of that buy-in and get a, have a lot more of a fruitful experience with everybody on your team. And, you know, that actually even on a practical notion goes towards, like I remember I, I used to think that we couldn't spend a lot of time on individual drills, individual, you know, skill development. I, I got to do five on five. I got to do put the offense in, put the defense in. And um, what I realized is, is like, you know, no offense is worth its salt if, you, if they can't handle the ball. 
or if they can't shoot. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, if I were to do it now, I took over a program, we would spend half the practice on individual skill development. And the funny thing is about being a triangle offense coach was all the breakdown drills, the two on two or two on oh, three on oh, four on oh, whatever. It, as I was realizing it later, I was actually doing that. They were working on their individual skills as all of our warm up as we built it to the triangle. So I was kind of doing that anyway, even though I was adamant saying, oh, we can't spend all this time on individual skills. Um, and so there's a way to do that where you break down things and you're not just, it doesn't seem like you're just sort of, you know, spending. Uh, fruitless time, you're actually developing both the individual skill and the offensive concepts you want them to learn. And all those things go into that trust that the player has to have if you want to be successful. I don't see any other teams, most teams I've ever seen that have won have had that trust from the player back to the coach. Um, and the ones that don't do as well are the ones where the coach is always complaining and the players don't buy in and they don't listen to him. They're not playing hard. And it's all because they don't have that trust that, they, that the coach wants their best. So let me segue into the next part of the conversation I have coming up actually later this week after we release this on the podcast. There's going to be a discussion about the DISC assessment. I don't know if you have any familiarity with that. Basically, it is looking into players, and we've been talking about players falling underneath of this umbrella, as in all players. I want to hear your experience with dealing with players uh, the fact that not every player is the same. And so when it comes to motivating each player, I may be able to, and I think we all understand this to a degree, but I didn't understand it to the point that the kinds of things that I'm saying, the words, the phrases, the things that I'm communicating, that, that they value, different people value different things. So when it comes to me actually communicating to those players, I may say, to, sure, I may say to them like, you know, we want to be competitive. Let me make this drill competitive. If you beat this goal or this, whatever, like they're valuing relationships or they're valuing something else. So let's go deeper now into the players experience wise that maybe that you've had with motivating players and you understanding that maybe one thing that works with one player does not work with the player that's right next to him. Because let's be honest, I, as a college coach, most high school co coaches, depending on what's happening, your rosters are completely turning over every two to four years. So I may be working with a group of players and I've figured it out. And this team, I can get, I can motivate them to play at their highest potential. And then four years later, I'm at ground zero. And I'm like, I got this. And so I start using the same tactics again and it doesn't work. And I'm like, wait a second, what just happened here? I, I don't understand what's happening. So any experiences that you've had with that or thoughts that go along with that? Yeah, I mean, most of them are negative. Most of them I look back and think, God, I do that badly. I really did not, you know, because of course it's a lot easier, I think, to remember those than the ones where you actually did do well with, you know, the way you developed that thing. Now, a lot of times you might develop a thing that a, a method of communication or style that works, you know, for three quarters of the players, right? And you, you just kind of go into the season knowing, gosh, I'm going to have a problem with this one guy or these two guys. It's going to be a problem. We're going to butt heads. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, this is probably where, like, the, the genius of John Calipari comes in because he seems, for all the issues I might have, X's and O's and the way he runs his programs, whatever, there does seem to be a way for him that he's developed that he can reach even the most, you know, quote, unquote, troubled players that would, you know, be thrown out of other you know, places. John Wooden was also that way, right? He he seemed to understand how to individually deal with players. I would love to say you can develop like a, a questionnaire that has 30 questions on it and they all fill it out the first day of the season. And then you are able to plug it into a computer and it tells you exactly what their personality type is. And then you would know how to do now that probably is realistic. You could probably do that. You know, if you had the right, you know, background in psychology or whatever, you can, uh, it's, but not, it's easy. not cheap. 
Okay, it's not, yeah, right. I have a friend who does that for like businesses and corporations yeah. as a consultant, yeah, and he charges a lot of money. Now, you could probably develop it on your own sort of intrinsically because we've had those coaches like Phil Jackson and, uh, you know, John Wooden. They, they just sort of are the natural players coach, Chuck Daly, we saw. Um, and I think a lot of times in the past, we would have shrugged and said, oh, those guys are just, they just somehow know how to do it. It's natural, lucky them. I don't have that. I can't do that. When I really do feel like we can develop this, these are techniques you can learn to quickly assess who the player is, how they react, and you might screw it up. It might not work perfectly in the beginning. And, but you ha that's why all the that's why like what I'm talking about with Mark Bennett and uh, Alan Keane on my other show about um, you know player based training is it's so much more work, right? It really is because you have to be so much more hyper aware of all the little details and be able to scan the floor. They like to use that term, scan the floor. And we're not scanning for like are they running the right uh, option or using the right footwork. You are scanning for eye contact, body language. Uh, you know, uh, uh, decision making process and all those things. Um, it really is hard. And now, of course, after a year or two, whatever, it probably does become easier. Just like when I started teaching the triangle offense, my mind was was swimming. It seemed like so complicated. And now when I break it down and look at it, I almost am embarrassed at how simple it really it seems to me now. Um, and that's probably what will happen as uh, over time when you when you have that focus. I, I told the story in my, in my, last week about how um, I had gotten the X's and O's down really well, and I wanted to take the next step uh, in my high school program with the uh, psychology. And uh, just by the by the conscious decision to do that, without even interacting with like you know experts to help me give me some techniques, it, it started to seep into my coaching anyway. Where I would see a couple players, maybe they were yelling at each other for you know not sharing the ball, or whatever. And there might have been a, mo a, a moment where I would have blown the whistle, got them on the line, had them run. Like, you're not a team. You're not working like a team. I'm, you're gonna I'm gonna punish you. You're gonna run suicides. And instead, I was able to, like, almost in a funny way, diffuse it, walk them through a better way to discuss this and how to get to where they needed to both go. Uh, and it really just, you know, it stuck in my mind, at least. I hope it stuck in their minds. But it avoided sort of this punitive uh, 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 punishment thing, which running suicides does not develop team chemistry, <laughs> if you, you know, if that is the goal. Yeah. So for the coach that's listening to this and maybe has some conflicting thoughts in their mind because they're hearing about how they need to change and almost I'm suggesting is it's no longer the coach centered approach, even though you're the person that stays around in the program for 20 years while your kids move on. I firmly believe that it needs to be more of a player center approach, but they're also now thinking that's going to require me to change. And I've been taught to be true to myself how do those ideas either go against each other or maybe can they be can they work together well i mean certainly if uh, i would say every single coach when they start working with a player the intention is the player is going to improve right uh he's going to get better at ball handling he's going to get better at shooting that's my goal we're going to do we're going to work as hard as we can to do that well why wouldn't you do the same thing for your coaching right? I'm going to work as hard as I can to get better. You know, Greg Popovich isn't who he is without having to really work on it and learn and master and adjust and change. They don't just out of the womb, you know, have all that information and know how to communicate. And, uh, and even, even now, I'm sure he'll say he makes tons of mistakes. He can't believe it. So it's like, that's got to be the motivation for you to continually look at different ways to do things. And um, I mean, all I could tell you is that, you know, if you're looking at the Bobby Knight style mode and thinking like a, the, the only reason why that would be like true to yourself would probably be because it was modeled to you when you played or you were an assistant to someone like that. And that scene you saw, oh, we won a championship that year. So look, it works. Um, my answer to that kind of stuff is usually that's not the reason why it worked. 
I'm sure there's lots of great stuff going on X's and O's. I'm sure you had some really good players who were just, you know, great athletes too, and all those kind of different things. Um, and it was almost like, it, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's almost like despite the, 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 the Bobby Knight stuff of screaming and yelling and making him crazy, uh, you won. So um, that's all, you know, I'll even relate it to this. Uh, there were moments, and I think we might get into this about with Tom Mizzo when we, I had tweeted about him during the tournament last year. And um, I got so many people who had told me, I need that kind of coaching, that, you know, ball of fury uh, on, on me every second to, to play as well as I can. And what saddened me about that was that here were players who were convinced and trained to think that that's what they needed. Draymond Green is going to be the hardest player on the court whether he had Tom Izzo coaching him or whether he had Brad Stevens coaching him. And he'll tell you that too. He was playing that way in eighth grade. So I don't think that that's the key. And I think the, the sad thing about when you hear so many players say that is that they simply never had a coach who practiced emotional intelligence. That's the term that I like to use because it really sort of allows you to have leeway where you can use passion when you need it. And it's, but it's uh, focus and, and uh, detail oriented where you can get the right um, outcome that you're looking for without destroying a piece of the relationship. And that's what I think is what Tom Izzo does when he, when he detonates on these players all the time. And his one really good attribute then is because he can, he knows how to repair the relationship later. You know, and he's got a lot of experience doing that. He can, he knows how to establish the relationship really well. He, can, he must be a great guy in the beginning and he's a pal and he can, they bond. Then he destroys them and, they ha and then he has to repair it. And he's done that so long that he knows how to do it. But um, I don't know, to me, there's a measure of emotional abuse there. Now, don't forget, I want to make this clear. I was that coach, kind of. I don't know if I had as much anger, but I was a crazy yell and scream, whatever. I had coaches just like that, that modeled it for me. And that's, that's, that's all I knew. So I come from that. I know exactly what's going on in your mind and why you feel that way, why it's almost helpless feeling, which is why you want to lash out and be angry. Um, I know what that is like, and I've kind of evolved to somewhere else, which is the reason why I'm talking to you about it, because I feel like it'd be nicer to, it'd be better to have more people discuss it. And I know my instant reaction to this when I was younger would have been like, oh, I would have turned this thing off right away, mm -hmm. you know? But, you know, if we could get a couple of coaches to listen a little bit longer and realize and try it at least, then we'll, we'll be better. I think a good point that you made in that Tom Izzo video towards the end was the fact that even within that tournament, I mean, it was just several days later from, from weekend to weekend in the NCAA tournament is that he made the adjustments. And I feel like we talk about being continual learners and continuing to improve, but yet with our coaching style, we want to say, I am who I am. You just have to deal with it. And for young coaches, like you said, I think the key point is you can change and you need to change because your players need to have that kind of relationship that they can have that trust and you're not blowing up at them and they're not responding in a way then that displeases you or that you feel like they're disrespecting you or whatever. So, you know, kind of like summarizing, summarizing the whole talk, especially for younger coaches who are listening to this. And like you just said, you have the experience of having been through this and you're looking back now on your life. It's not just observing other people, but like on your life, what are some things that were key to you to improving that player coach relationship dynamic, and then also being a better motivator of your players? Absolutely. I think the key here is, is you want to try and figure out how to unlock the most from your team. Cause there's going to be a time where you're going to play a team that's as good as you or better. 
And the only way to win is to play above your heads, to achieve something in a flow state. And again, we know uh, the science behind how the brain operates and how you get players to play the best they possibly can. And that is when they're in a positive frame of mind. I had tweeted that to Dan Dockett, who was complaining about, you know, AAU coaches these days are soft, whatever. And I said, Dan, you probably must recognize, especially because remember his background is he coached with Bobby Knight and he seems to hate Bobby Knight now. And so I would thought that there would be some simpatico here. And I said, surely you recognize that the value of having a player play in a positive state of mind. And his response was, I think, to quote tweet it and then write, go away in all caps. And um, I, I was just astounded by that because, again, the science tells us, and we know this just from us, anybody who ever played a pickup game to any other level, you are at your best when you have like a rhythm and you have like your favorite song going in your head and you are loose is not exactly the right word, but you have that extra bounce and extra movement. When you play like a ball of fury and completely tense, you can't shoot the ball that well. You know, you can't move laterally as quickly as you could if we were more springy and explosive. So, you know, you can't you can't shoot the ball any harder. You know, we need to talk about play hard. Right. So we have to be able to achieve, you know, uh, a, an optimal flow state, which is what we call that. Uh, and you, you'll destroy that possibility of having that state if you are ranting and raving on the sideline. And what you mentioned about Izzo was, first of all, I just want to say he was kind of a dick because he clearly heard the the criticism i i probably for me because that tweet went around the world six different times you know scott van pelt was doing you know was subtweeting me in his uh uh his uh, diatribe to the camera but um you know lebron all those guys were weigh, weighing in but he was so like at some point maybe the next game they asked him okay hey you guys came out in the second half we're on fire like what'd you do and he goes oh we gave him hugs. We asked him really nicely if they get some more rebounds for us at halftime. And they really was nice, you know, and he was just so smug, you know, whatever. But the point was he heard the criticism and you're right. He did. I don't think I saw any detonations or any kind of craziness going on the sideline. And what happened? The team took off. They got all the way to the finals, right? The, wait, the final or final four? Final, final four. four. And they're playing Virginia, I think, right? who is clearly a better team. I, you know, I, I think this is right. And maybe the final four of Virginia, they're clearly the better team, right? They're not, you know, Michigan State, they're just not going to win necessarily, right? They're certainly not going to win like on the merits of like talent, talent. So here was his chance to like get them in that flow state and give them a chance to play above their heads. And maybe, you know, like Villanova over Georgetown, we're, we'd get like this, you know, a great big upset because they play like that. And what did we see with about 12 minutes to go? And they were down 10, 11. It was just not going their way. He's sitting there, his head is down, he's pacing back and forth, he's sighing, he's tossing his hands up. All the things that would just drag the energy of the team down, he was doing like textbook. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now I'm not saying they would have won had he changed his body language and the, and, the, and the vocal language he was using to try and help. But man, can I give you, I'm, I'm talking a lot, I know, but I guess, uh, right. you know, that's why we're here. But uh, <laughs> um, I'm gonna give you a quick anecdote because I know I mentioned really quickly that, um, you know, like if you go to medical school, they have these classes to teach you bedside manner, right? You know, because a lot of these guys are just scientists and math people who, you know, they don't interact well with patients. You got to learn how to do that. But they don't have that for coaches. I don't understand why. Mm -hmm. It would be easy to teach certain techniques. So really quickly, I had met with a guy who was a... Um, a guy who studied uh, Tony Robbins. So we all know Tony, Tony Robbins, right? And like he oftentimes, oftentimes will get made fun of because he's just sort of over the top with his motivational speaking stuff. But I got to tell you, it's powerful. NLP, the uh, uh, linguistic programming, like, you know, it's sort of getting a, you can elicit a positive emotional response based on language if you train it. So this guy was like, pick a word or a phrase. This is years ago. And right before my season started, he goes, pick a word or a phrase 
Don't use it a lot, but every once in a while in a practice, if something really good happens, stop the practice and use that word or phrase and sprinkle it in across your training the first couple months of the season. So I, that was Gangnam Style that year. Remember that guy uh, from North, from South Korea? Um, you know, the funny, that funny video. So, you know, we do a high post entry, backdoor cut, uh, back bounce pass layup, right? I blow the whistle. I'm like, that was Gangnam Style, right? And like, they're laughing because I'm mispronouncing it, whatever. Did it like once a week for the six or eight weeks we had while we were training, whatever. We are now, we have a home and away series every year with this, with this uh, team. That it's, it's always, no matter how good or how bad whatever team is, it's always a close game. It's no, no matter what, huge rivalry for pretty much. And we're down, it's halftime, and I'm talking to them. And all of a sudden, I'm like, you know what we need? We need Gangnam Style. And I swear to God, they, our eyes opened wide, the smile came across their face, and we went out in the third quarter and just destroyed them. And I thought I was cheating. I literally thought that was cheating because how could I, I, I almost felt like I conditioned them to do that. Now you tell me there aren't 12 other things you can do that would, that kind of would do the same kind of thing and you can learn those. Right. And they're all very much mechanical things. You can simply step-by-step step learn. And all of a sudden now you can on command, hopefully, you know, uh, draw that flow state out of your players. And it's like, then you'll have like what Steph Curry has. Steph Curry, remember the zone when we were growing up, you'd be in the zone. Yeah. We don't really hear about that anymore. Right. With shooting. I don't know why, but Steph Curry has trained himself to be in the zone yeah. on command pretty much. And I think that that's what we're moving towards. Yeah. So before I let you go, you've been talking about several times, you've mentioned the series that you have, and I think it kind of goes along with what we've been talking about. So I want people to know where that is. Can you tell them where that is, how often you're doing it and when that will be released? Sure. Well, I've already released, so we've released four episodes. Uh, it, it was a really long conversation. So each one's 25, 30 minutes, each episode with the last four weeks, every Thursday, and then it ended yesterday, uh, we've released them. And then in about 40 minutes from now, I'll be going live with Mark and with Alan to answer questions, kind of like what we're doing here, but we'll try and get some live feedback. And so those live forever on YouTube. And there's a, you know, I have it on the playlist as well. Uh, and then, you know, parent, uh, sort of uh, parallel to that, I have a library of videos, both on court and things that are like this, where we have a conversation. And I'm bringing in a lot of coaches from around at every level. And what I'm sort of pitching for them is let's do it. I want you to do like almost a cross between a clinic presentation and a panel discussion so that it's not just a guy talking for 30 minutes straight. Like you do, if you go to a clinic and you're sitting in the stands taking notes um, because I'll sort of interact as well. And I believe that we're getting sort of deeper into the subject than he would have gotten or she would have gotten just by doing a presentation at a clinic. And so the, uh, what I'm going to start to do is release bits and pieces across, you know, my YouTube channel and my Instagram and Twitter. And then we'll have the full length stuff in my sort of my premium library where coaches can have access to all the different things uh, in there. Then there's X's and O stuff too, like the four must have actions in your offense. Uh, I also actually, for as much as I'm a triangle offense coach and, a, and a, an offensive, you know, studier of the game, I always felt like my defensive team, the teams on the defense ended up really playing well and really sort of um, executing maybe better than the offense. And so I shot a whole defensive system series that I, that I developed over time of how I, you know, installed the man-to-man -man defense. And ironically enough, it does use a lot of the Bobby Knight principles, just not the Bobby Knight style of the communication. And so anyway, so there's a lot of those things like that. There's shorter, you know, those are all like long, you know, almost an hour length videos, but I do have shorter ones too, of, you know, 
little bits and pieces of shooting and random and, you know, all sorts of things. So anyway, a lot of resources on my side, and I'm just now kind of trying to make a push into that to let coaches know that not only am I just doing, you know, uh, NBA breakdowns of, of what's going on X's and O's or whatever, but, you know, we're doing a lot of content to help coaches uh, it just, you know, learn different methods that would hopefully unlock more uh, potential from their teams. I'll echo that and be the testimonial for you. I love the fact that I can go there. And if I have a large chunk of time on my hands, I can pick a longer video. If I only have a few minutes or I'm right before bed and I just want to watch something, I'll watch a shorter one. They've got, you've got the tactics, you've got the technical side, you've got the fun stuff. You've got the looking at systems, NBA college, you got it all. So I really appreciate all that you do for all the coaches and it's always a fun conversation with you. So thank you so much for fitting me into your busy schedule. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate it. Uh, that was, this was amazing. Awesome. Thanks coach. Just really quickly. If you haven't heard yet about anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will even distribute your podcast to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and other platforms so your show actually gets heard. You can even make money from your podcast, no matter the size of your audience. It really is everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again at the next time out.